those of you who are both regular and observant members of Charlotte Chapel may have noticed something unusual about my appearance here in the pulpit this morning for the first time in 12 years I came into the pulpit not wearing a tie. Among those who did notice, and yes, I did notice a few people smiling, and I won't mention them by name, some of you may be saying, great. I suspect others, especially among the older generation, may be concerned. What next, you wonder? Jeans and a t-shirt? What ministers wear is actually an interesting subject. And until fairly recently, the defining mark of a ministry was the strangely, maybe aptly named, dog collar. I tried to find out the origins of this on the internet this weekend. That's shrouded in history. Uh, Some attribute the invention of the dog collar to uh, a Scottish minister, which may make sense, called the Reverend Dr. Donald MacLeod in the 19th century. Uh, Another suggestion said that they went back to the Methodist circuit riders in America in frontier days who wore sweat bandanas around their noses and mouths and when they got off their horses to preach they pushed them down around their neck. I'm not sure which is correct and it doesn't really matter. Uh, whatever is the case, uh, the dog collar became a kind of tradition for ministers. Though Baptists, uh, being somewhat angular and also believing in the priesthood of all believers that all of us are equal and the the ministry is not distinct from everyone else, tended to be less inclined to wear them, though some did. However, they had to adopt some kind of dress, and so we tend to go for the more formal rather than the casual a suit and tie or jacket. And we certainly probably wouldn't turn up in working clothes, so don't worry about the T-shirt and the jeans at this stage. I, I suspect that if the tie finally goes out of fashion, we ministers will probably be the last people wearing them, and the tie will become as distinctive as the dog collar uh, as a minister's garb. Uh, A study of church history, let alone an overview of what ministers in different parts of the world wear, shows that what we wear in church is tradition. Let me give you a definition. It's not a very good one, but a tradition. It's a practice not prescribed or forbidden by the Bible, but one that we claim is derived from it in in some way. Uh, There is nothing in the New Testament that tells us what Christians, let alone ministers, should wear. It's a matter for speculation. And so you say, well, why do we wear more formal dress? And if you ask most Christians, why do you wear smart clothes in church? I can't tell you how many times someone has said to me, the reason is because you are meeting with the King of Kings. Would you dress casually if you were meeting with the Queen? To which my answer always is, no, but I might if I was a member of the royal family. Think about that for a moment, sorry. Now, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with Christian traditions. In fact, you can't live without them. They're the inevitable conclusion, the outcome, of applying what you believe as a group of people from a particular social context at a particular time in history and they are then passed down the generations. And the great danger is that tradition in the next generation becomes traditionalism. We do something without even knowing why we do it or thinking about it. Uh, The wonderfully named church historian Yaroslav Pelikan put it like this. Tradition is the living faith of the dead 
traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, problems arise when traditions begin to acquire an equal authority with the Word of God. And when that happens, the inevitable conclusion is that they end up having a greater authority than the Bible on which they claim to be based. And then, when that happens, woe betide anyone who challenges the traditions and those who see themselves as guardians of the traditions. Now, this is seen nowhere more clearly than in the interaction and the increasing acrimonious debate between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes or teachers of the law. We've already seen this in our series, Following Jesus. And as we come to our passage today, for a second time, we find the teachers of the law and the Pharisees send a delegation a hundred miles north to Galilee where Jesus is teaching and preaching. As the popularity of Jesus rises, so does their alarm and concern. And as on previous occasions, their focus is not so much on what Jesus preached as what he and his disciples practiced. And they see this as a conflict of traditions between their practices and those of Jesus and his disciples. In this case, not a matter of what they wore, but are a matter of purity, what they touched, how they clean themselves up, and also of food, what they ate. But Jesus, we'll see, goes beyond the traditions to what I want to call, if you want to title this morning, to the heart of the matter. So let's look together at Mark 7, 1 to 23, the passage that we read together, and see what we can make of this. Because as we do so, you will discover that there is a very, very important issue at stake here. In fact, it is probably the most important fundamental issue that divides human beings that divides religions across the board. The Pharisees and their allies have got a lot of bad press. But we need to recognize that originally, when they started out, their motives and intentions were good. They said, God has given us his law through Moses. Basically, what we would call the first five books of the Bible, which the Jews call the Torah. And they said, yeah, we've got all these wonderful principles about what we should do, but how do you earth that in practice? How do you put into practice one of these commandments? How does it specifically work? We've seen this with the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, what does that mean in practice? Don't work on the Sabbath. Well, what constitutes work? What do you have to do to make it work? And they had all sorts of rules. You give thanks for your food. Well, how much weight of food do you need to have before you give thanks for it? And they tried to address every situation that they found. But Jesus says they're going about it completely the wrong way. The big problem is that they fail to understand the serious nature of the problem that human beings face. And Jesus offers a radical and different diagnosis. Pleasing God, two radically different approaches to the problem and to the solution. And I want you to just look at each of these in turn because they are fundamental to each one of us. Each one of us is either following the ways of the Pharisees, whether we would call ourselves Pharisees, probably not, or we're following the way of Christ and we need to work out which we're following because our eternal destiny, our standing before God, whether we're pleasing God or not, hangs upon this. So let me begin with the Pharisees and teachers of the law and, and summarize what they taught 
with the words outside in. For the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the real problem you faced if you're a human being, that which will defile you and corrupt you, that which will make you unacceptable to God, is the outside world. It's a bad place. Sin was like a contagious skin disease which you caught by exposure, by contamination from unclean things and people that you came into contact with in the world. Think of this idea then of sin as being like a skin disease. And so in these verses, see what the Pharisees focus on. They focus on the external. On your hands and what you touch and on your mouth and what you eat. Affecting the hands and the mouth. So this Jerusalem delegation comes up to check out Jesus and his disciples and what happens? They catch their disciples red-handed or dirty-handed. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, look at verse 5, why don't your disciples live, that, that literally there in Greek it's walk, why isn't it their practice? Why don't they live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now if you've got the Bible in front of you, you'll see that the translators have put the next two verses in brackets because it's really an explanation by Mark who we've seen wrote this gospel for non-Jews, he's telling them, you know, you may not understand what's, what's behind all this, so let me, let me give you a word of explanation. Alright? But what he says, he says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, imagine it, a, a good Jew goes out into the marketplace, does a bit of shopping, meets a few people. Comes back home and he wants to have a meal. But before he can eat, he must cleanse himself from all that has contaminated him from his venture out into alien territory. And in particular, he must wash his hands or he might corrupt the food that he touches, which he will then eat and which will defile his whole, his whole body. It is literally a case of cleanliness is next to godliness. However, the issue here is not what we might think. We all agree with this. We tell our children, wash your hands before you have your meal. Have you washed your hands yet? But we do it because of reasons of hygiene. We don't want them to get infected with any germs they might have picked up. But the issue here for the Jew is nothing to do with that. It's to do with defilement, not dirt, of ritual or ceremonial purity. The word unwashed then refers not to physical washing, it, it refers to moral and spiritual pollution, what might defile you. Uh, the word in verse 3 where it says ceremonial washing, the word ceremonial there is a strange word, no one's quite sure what it means. It says literally, washing with the fist. Uh, and no one is exactly sure what this means. Some people think it meant that you had to have, a, well the law of, the laws passed down by the Pharisees, prescribed the exact amount of water that you needed when you wash yourself like this and it was a, about a handful and some people think it says you need to use a fistful that's the right amount you ceremonially wash yourself with a fistful of water that you scoop up probably more likely it's to do with how you do the washing right? what you did you got some water in your hands and if you're a good orthodox Jew you put it in your fist and then you did that to clean that fist then you've got a handful in here and you put the fist back in there 
and you allowed it to run down as far as your wrist. Alright? But think about it for a moment. The water that's been washed down now has reached your wrist, but it's polluted water. So then you had to face your hands down that way and get someone to pour water down that way so that the defiled water ran off you and you were now ceremonially clean. And all these instructions and many, many more Mark tells us, even relating to the utensils, they even had rules about the kind of water you used and where you stored it. You remember in John 2, the first miracle Jesus did at Cana, he turned water into wine. There were six stone water jars that the Jews used. What did they use them for at the wedding? They used them for this washing. And they had to be covered, made of a certain kind of stone, and kept ritually pure. And so what happened? This is how traditions happen. People defined all these things in great detail. And they passed on these oral laws, by word of mouth, down the generations. Uh, this didn't stop at the time of Jesus, it carried on. And about 200 years after the time of Jesus, they were finally collated together in written form, in a document, big document, known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah contains 36, 30 chapters alone on instructions for how to clean vessels. And then to that was added a commentary called the Gemara, and the whole thing was put together in this huge thing called the Jewish Talmud, which you may have heard of, you may not have heard of. The Talmud contains 365 prohibitions and 248 commandments. In other words, can you see what they're trying to do? They're trying to say, I want to know in every situation that I find myself in life, am I pleasing God? They were an attempt to earth in practice the principles of the law of God given through Moses to every situation you might face in life. But before we smile and say how crazy, just stop for a moment, and I won't enumerate things, stop and think about all the things that we do as Christians in church and outside that we regard as absolutely valid and this is the right way to do things. So in the case of purity, people needed to know what are the things that defile me so that I can make sure I'm clean before God, acceptable to Him. And these were discussed and debated by those who had maturity, the elders, usually old in age, and they became accepted as the tradition of the elders. Now, going back to our principle of what a tradition is, there is nothing in the law of Moses about washing your hands. There is some instructions about priests washing their hands before serving God in the temple. In Exodus 30 and 40 you'll find that. But the Pharisees extended this to everybody in every situation. So, but by the time of Jesus, these things were regarded as on a level with the law of Moses. You have the law of Moses, you have the tradition of the elders, and they would have equal authority. Uh, the Pharisees said, by doing this, they were erecting a fence for the law, the Torah, to protect it. But in fact, all that happened, as so often happens with fences, is it keeps people out rather than keeping things in. So no wonder when they see the disciples of Jesus behaving like this, they say to Jesus, what's going on here? Why don't they follow the tradition of the elders? Recognizing that Jesus is the teacher, they are the disciples following his instructions. Now notice how Jesus responds to this, because it's very important. All right? You've got the tradition bit. He doesn't respond to the specific issue about hand washing. What he does, he launches a far broader broadside against their underlying attitude and approach. He quotes from Isaiah 29 and says, you're fulfilling Isaiah 29, 13 in the Greek version of the Old Testament. 
You're guilty of hypocrisy. Look at verses 6 and 7. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Now the hypocrite, of course in Greek culture, was an actor. It's called the Hippocrates. And what he did, he learned to part and he wore a mask in a play. But that wasn't his real self. But these people, Jesus said, you're playing a part. You're reading from the rule books. But it matched your real character. You're only doing lip service, saying the right words, but behind it you have a heart problem. And your traditions, which you claim are God-given, are in fact man-made. They're rules taught by men. And not only that, he says, these rules now are not only on a par with the law of God, they even take precedence over the law of God. Verse 8, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the the traditions of men. And Jesus gives an example of this, which is called korban. You see that word korban there? It's a funny word. It's actually a literal Hebrew word, korban. Sounds like call my bliss, doesn't it? But korban literally means to bring near. And so it means to offer something to God. And once you offered something to God, it became holy. That means set apart for God's service. You couldn't use it for anything else. However, in this case, you didn't have to literally give it. If you said about your money and your property, it's Corban, I've devoted it to God, your intention was enough. So a person could make a vow, and then, let's just say this person's parents got in desperate straits and financial need, and came to their son and said, Son, you need to help us, we're in trouble. The son would say, I'm really sorry, but it's Corban, I can't use it. It's in a restricted fund. Or it could be that a person made a Corban vow and then circumstances changed and they said, Look, we made the vow in good faith, but now our parents are in need, we need to take the money and use it for them. And the Pharisees wouldn't let them do that. Verse 12, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Now the principle Jesus is making, he says, look, this is setting aside a clear law of God. We looked at it the other week in our series in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Exodus 20, verse 12. He says you're actually nullifying the word of God. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like that. And to emphasize how wrong this is, Jesus extends it beyond that to all the things that defile a person from hands that touch the food to the food itself he declares to the crowd in this radical teaching verse 14 listen to me everyone understand this nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him rather it's what comes out of him that makes him unclean you'll notice in the footnote some versions of Greek manuscripts include verse an extra verse verse 16 he who has ears to hear let him hear which Jesus already said in Mark 4 verse 9. Either way, the point is that the disciples don't hear properly. They don't understand what's going on. And they ask him about this parable-like saying. Fortunately, they ask him so that we can now read the answer. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, are you so dull? Literally, have you got no understanding? Don't you understand what I'm talking about? Verse 18, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. Uh, The words of Jesus are actually even more blunt than our translators make them. Uh, 
He says, Jesus literally says, what you eat goes into your stomach and via the digestive tract ends up in the latrine. In other words, he's saying, outside in, and then out again. Thus he says, what you eat cannot make you unclean in the eyes of God. Mark adds, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, this might be in brackets and in a side, but it is a stupendous statement by Jesus. And now, if you're a good Jew, you really think you've got him at this point. Because if you know the Old Testament law, there were foods that were clean and unclean, laid down in Leviticus and Exodus. The law of God had said you shouldn't eat certain things, but you could eat other things. Surely Jesus is contradicting the law at this point. In fact, as we'll see, Jesus has come, as he said on another occasion in the Sermon on the Mount, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That is to give them their full meaning. And the teaching of Jesus is so radical here that it turns everything that the Pharisees and people like them practice. And so let me suggest that the teaching of Jesus, we look, to that, look at that secondly, not outside in, but Jesus says it's a case of inside out. Pharisees thought that sin was like a disease that you caught from the outside world. And so you have to keep screwing yourself to keep clean all the time. Their religion, if you like, was only skin deep. But Jesus is saying here, sin is not a skin disease. Sin is a heart problem. Look at the words of Jesus in verses 20 to 23. And I've highlighted on the screen some of the words. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and all fo- and folly. All these evils come from within inside and make a man unclean. What is he saying? He's saying, you're just covering up with cosmetics. Sin isn't like that. Sin is an organic disease rooted deep in your nature, in your heart. The heart, of course, is not just the emotions. It is the real person, who you are, your soul, mind, emotion, will. The very person and character you are is fatally flawed. You're suffering from a serious problem. And no amount of hand scrubbing will cure you from it. There is an inner corruption within each one of us. Jeremiah the prophet knew that. He said, the heart deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can understand it and it's because the heart is not only diseased but also deceitful that people like the Pharisees just can't see this they think some cosmetics will cover up the problem but they're merely play acting they're covering up the real issue they're not facing up to the real situation Jesus devastatingly described them on another occasion in Matthew 23, he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you look to people like you're religious, righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And Jesus described this terrible catalogue of all these problems, these sins, these vices that grip our lives and that result in evil acts. And he says, they're not something you've caught from outside. They produce outward symptoms. If someone knocks someone on the head and kills them, it produces an outward symptom. 
But the problem doesn't lie there. The problem lies deeper with their heart that's full of hatred and anger that explodes in violent action. And these are the things, Jesus said, that makes a person unclean in God's eyes. And no amount of hand-washing can ever solve the problem of a diseased heart, a degenerate nature. Now, before we condemn the Pharisees, we need to search our own hearts. If what Jesus says is true, the Pharisees, who are the example par excellence of anyone else in history, of trying to please God by your own efforts, if it's true of them, how much less chance have we got of living like Pharisees and pleasing God by the good things we think we do, which will find acceptance in his eyes? Yet, like them, we refuse to face up to the seriousness of our problem. Instead, we settle for cosmetic surgery, dealing only with the surface, with externals. So, all religions, try and improve yourself, do better, do good, read the Bible, pray a lot, come to Charlotte Chapel, do every activity you can think of, and surely you'll gain some credit in the bank of heaven, and God will be pleased with you. But while our smart suits and ties may fool others, they don't deceive God. God looks to the heart, and He says, you're a hypocrite. You're playing an act. You're covering up your true nature, pretending to be what we are not. And this is a problem for all human beings. A problem for each one of us. Now, this is a radical diagnosis of Jesus, the great physician. Unless you, do, unless you understand this, you'll never understand why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. It wasn't some kind of disagreement about, you know... You wash your hands down to the wrist and we wash them down to our elbows. Which do you think is right? <laughs> this is far more fundamental and serious than that. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus, the great physician, not only diagnoses the problem. He didn't just come into the world to say, this is your problem and return to heaven. That would have been terrible. He came into the world, as the angel said, you're to call his name to his parents, you're to call his name Jesus, for he's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to deal with the problem. He's going to cure the diseased heart. He's going to provide you with a new nature. And the radical diagnosis of Jesus revealed that radical surgery was needed. Heart surgery, a heart transplant, a change of heart. Now, if you read the Old Testament carefully, the record of God's people Israel, you will know that there were people who realized this. Think of King David. He committed adultery and then conspired in the murder of the, woman he commit, of the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. Now, what caused him to commit adultery? Well, he walked out on his balcony roof one evening and he looked down and there was a woman bathing. And he committed adultery with it. Now, what was his problem? Well, the Pharisees would say he should have stayed indoors. Wrong place caught adultery by looking at that woman. No, he didn't. The adultery was in his own heart. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Adultery is a matter of, we'll, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks, next week I think it is. Adultery is not a matter of just the external act. It is, it is the lust within our human hearts that desires produce a sexual desire that is inappropriate for someone you're not married to. And so, when David prayed that great prayer of repentance in, in Psalm 51. It is an amazing prayer and if you need to repent, go to Psalm 51 and just pray it from your heart and God will hear you. It's an amazing prayer. He recognized this. He says, surely to God, I was sinful at birth. 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I, I didn't acquire this from somewhere out in the world. I've always been like that. It's in my nature. And so he asked the Lord, not only to cleanse him from his sin, but for a change of heart. Psalm 51 verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And it was this which the prophets looked forward to through the Holy Spirit promised. So Jeremiah, with his radical diagnosis of the sick human heart, anticipates the radical remedy the Lord will provide. He says the time is coming when God will make a new covenant with His people Israel. Not like the old agreement, which was to do with the surface observance of the law. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts, I will be their God. They will be my people. Now Jesus came to inaugurate this new covenant. And the amazing thing is that through the opposition of the Pharisees who put him to death, that was the means by which God provided a way of forgiveness and inaugurated this new and living way by which we can approach God. You see, the Pharisees with their traditions, they put up a fence for the law of God. Kept everybody out. Except them and their pals. Jesus in his death opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers to all who would repent and believe the good news that was his message we've seen in Mark's gospel the time has come the kingdom is here it's something radically different you need to repent believe the good news and that was too much for the Pharisees and that's why they killed him but God used this in this remarkable way to open up a new and living way by which sinners can be forgiven we may approach a holy God we may receive the Holy Spirit and receive a new nature and become the people that God intends us to be. And in doing this, Jesus fulfilled the law and all that it pointed to with its emphasis on purity. What the law showed was that you can't keep it. You can't be pure. You can't be pure as, as God demands. And now these rules are no longer necessary because Jesus has fulfilled the reality. Uh, Tom Wright, in his little book on Mark, puts it beautifully. The scripture spoke of purity and set up codes as signposts to it. Jesus was offering the reality. When you arrive at the destination, you don't need the signposts anymore. Not because they were worthless, but precisely because they were correct. All the ritual law pointed to Jesus and he fulfilled it all and offers a new and radical way by which we may approach God. Now, we're almost finished, but here's the conclusion. Which of these two approaches to God are you following? Every one of us this morning is following one of these ways or the other. Are you trying to please God by outward behavior, by good works, by keeping the rules? Your rules, your church's rules, your religion's rules. Or have you ever come to a point where you realize that you're never going to make it. And even your own rules you can't keep. And your own standards you fall short of. Have you ever seen that you need much deeper, more radical surgery? Have you come to the cross of Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing? Have you been, as Jesus said it himself, to a very religious man, also a Pharisee, he said, how am I going to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, you've got to be born again. Born again? Yeah, you've got to be radically changed by a work of the Holy Spirit within you. Are you relying on the rules or are you trusting in Christ now this morning if you are trusting in Christ if the Holy Spirit is living within you 
then it will produce holy behavior. As Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. We're not saved by the works we keep, but we're saved for good works which God produces within us, making us what we can never be. It's the evidence of a new nature. Sinclair Ferguson comments, it is the man who has been accepted by God's grace who devotes the rest of his life to pleasing him. The man who has no assurance that he's accepted by God will always live a lie, pretending to be better than he is, either before God or men. Which of these approaches are you following? One final thing you may be wondering. Am I going to continue to wear a tie in the pulpit on Sunday? Can I say, if it's a big issue for you, you've probably missed the point altogether. However, I expect I'll continue to wear one on most occasions. But, if wearing a tie or a suit becomes more important than living a godly life, and especially if people seeking help feel excluded from Charlotte Chapel because they're not wearing a tie or can't afford a suit, then it's time to think again. For as the Lord reminded the prophet Samuel when he was trying to choose a new king, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks 